Psalm 48. Already this summer we've covered Psalms 42 through 47. And the first thing you'll notice when you get to Psalm 48 is you'll notice uh, what's called a superscription. It's not the black, bold, black title there, but it will say something like a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. That's called a superscription. Uh, many people actually count that as verse 1. If you go to really the better commentators, commentaries, they'll call that verse 1. Because back in the really early days of uh, the church, uh, some thought that, that was, those, uh, the superscription was inspired. And we know that it's not. But what I want you to notice about that is that you'll see that this text this passage of scripture is first of all in the superscription called a psalm. That means it has lyrics that are to be sung. Okay? And then second of all, it's called in the superscription a psalm, which means this is a song that's going to be accompanied by musical instruments. It's written by the sons of Korah who are musicians or singers and uh, they have composed this song to be sung in the congregation during worship in ancient Israel. Now, when we look at the nature of this psalm, we're going to discover that it's a psalm of praise. Okay, That's very important that you understand this. God's going to be praised, and there's going to be some reference to the city of Jerusalem and how the Jews are to appreciate that city. When we look at the circumstances surrounding the psalm, uh, what we have is that a battle or a war has been avoided or averted and Jerusalem has escaped destruction. So that's the setting or that's the circumstance. So if I say, the circ what's the circumstance? You would say a battle has been averted and Jerusalem therefore has escaped destruction. Okay? You're going to see that in this psalm. So we're going to outline it this way. Verses 1 through 3, we're going to see that uh, the psalmist calls the people to praise God. That's Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3. Then verses 4 through 8, he's going to give the reason for praising God. Okay, He calls the people to praise God first. Now the reason to praise God. And then verses 9 through 11, you're going to see a little switch in the psalm and the psalmist talks directly to God. In verses 1 through 8, he's talking to the people, calls them to praise, tells them why they're to praise. And then verses 9 through 11, he speaks directly to God. And we'll see what he says there. And then verses 12 through 14, he calls the people to take a survey of the city. Take a tour of Jerusalem. He says, well, let's, let's take a walk around Jerusalem. You're going to see why he wants them to do that. So you ready? Okay, let's look at the declaration of praise. Psalm 48, verse 1. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. Now, when you see the word great there, that's a superlative. And uh, it means that there's no one greater than God. He is God the greatest, in a sense. And uh, if he's the great one, then there's no one that's greater than he is. Remember when Paul was in Ephesus and uh, the pagans were very angry that he was preaching the gospel and they all went to the amphitheater and they began to scream out, Great is Diana, the Ephesians! Great is Diana! Great is Diana! The psalmist says, Great is God! 
See, the people in Ephesus who were pagans believed that their goddess Diana was the greatest one. That's who they worshipped. You wouldn't worship a lesser god, you'd worship the great god. Well, the psalmist says our god is the great god. And when it's talking about God is great, it usually has to do with this concept of greatness usually has to do with conquering. Somebody who wins victories, that's a person who's great, even in human terms. Herod the Great. Uh, he, he knocked down a rebellion just like that. Okay. Alexander the Great. Frederick the Great. Even Babe Ruth. The great Bambino. No one was greater than him. He could win a game you know, with a single hit. So, uh, Jesus, our great shepherd. That's why we follow Jesus. We think he's great. The psalmist says God is great. And therefore, look, he is to be praised greatly. You see that? So that's the call to prayer, or to praise. Now, where are we to praise God? Look what it says in the middle of verse 1. In the city of our God. In his holy mountain. The old King James says, in the mountain of his holiness. The city of God is Jerusalem. The mount is where the temple sits. And that's where you're to praise God. He said, let's praise God in the city, the center of the earth, Jerusalem. And the center of Jerusalem considered, not geographically, but just in importance, uh, the temple. And then he says something about the city. Look in verse 2. He focuses on the city. He calls it beautiful in elevation. Beautiful in elevation. The old King James says beautiful for situation. What in the world does that mean? It means it's situated in a beautiful place. It's elevated to the highest point in the city. It is the most beautiful building. Everyone looks up and they see the temple and they go <gasps> so he calls it beautiful and it's beautiful in its elevation and then he says this in verse 2 the joy of the whole world everyone realizes that, uh, that the uh, temple is and the city are beautiful it's the joy of the whole world the reason that he says whole world or whole earth, it could mean just the land of Israel. All of the land of Israel believes that the uh, temple and the city are beautiful. Or it could mean the entire earth, which means the world that King David has conquered, whoever the king is, has conquered. We're not sure on that. But anyway, it receives admiration from more than probably just the Jewish people. Then look what it says in verse 2. The end of verse 2. Is Mount Zion... That's the mountain where it's elevated. Israel. On the sides of the north. It's the city of the great king. So we see the city is called... Uh, it's located in the northern part of uh, Judah. Jerusalem is in north Judah. The province of Judah. And the temple is located up north. It's elevated. You have to look up. Which may be talking about that. So he's just saying that Mount Zion is on the sides of the north, maybe the side of uh, the north side of Jerusalem. And then he says, it's where God lives. Look, the city of the great king. Uh, Jesus quotes that verse right there in uh, Matthew chapter 5. He says, uh, he talks about taking oaths. He said, you shouldn't take an oath saying, as God is my witness. You shouldn't take an oath by 
Jerusalem, the city of the great king, and he quotes this uh, passage right here when he is making that application. So we see this is where God dwells. It's the city of the great king. God, look at verse 3, is in her palaces. That's uh, her homes. Uh, God, not, it doesn't mean God lives there. It's not like God lives in people's homes. It's not like they have little statues of God on their mantelpiece like pagans had idols in their homes. It just means that God's known in all the homes of Jerusalem. Everybody in Jerusalem recognizes that God's great. Everyone in Jerusalem trusts God, at least during this period of time. They serve the great God. And notice at the end of verse 3, He is known as her refuge. That's her fortress. When uh, This is where people run when they get in trouble. When uh, an outside army, an invading army, comes into the city, uh, if you need refuge, you run to the temple where God lives. You might be in a palace. You don't stay in your palace when there's an invasion. You run to a fortress, and that fortress is the temple. Because it's located on the highest part of the city, on the hill, its enemies have to ascend to get to the people. So the temple and where God is becomes a fortress for them and a refuge. It's sort of the last stand uh, when the city is invaded. So here we see this. And as a result of this, what he's basically saying is, therefore we should praise God because God is our refuge. God is great. Okay. Now the reason for the praise. And this is where it gets very interesting in my opinion. Look at verses 4 and 5. For, here's why you should praise him, because, for behold, look, the kings, plural, assembled, they passed by together, they saw it, and they marveled, they were troubled, they hastened away. This speaks of an invasion. This speaks of an alliance of kings. Do you see the plural there, kings, in verse 4? These kings are in contrast to the king in whatever verse it is. What verse is it? Verse 3. God is, uh, not verse 3, verse 2. The great king. You see that at the end of verse 2? The great king, that's God. And then in verse 4, you see kings, plural. These are kings from other nations that have formed an alliance and they're going to invade Jerusalem. And so what they do, according to verses 4 and 5, is they assemble together and then it says they pass by together. They surround, they go past Jerusalem together and suddenly look what happens. They see it they are marveled at what marvel at what they see, and then look what it says they do. They are troubled. They're scared. They're frightened, and they hasten away. Now you've heard the saying, I'm sure. They came. They saw. They conquered. Anybody know what that is in Latin? Someone of you edu educated people. Huh? What is it? 
Not Winnie Winnie Winky. Vinnie, Vini, Vici. They came, they saw, they conquered. Here you go, the kings. They came, they saw, they ran away. They fled. So what we have is, in verses 1 through 3, the great king is in residence at Jerusalem. That's where he resides. The other kings retreat from Jerusalem. So you have one who resides in Jerusalem and one group of kings that are routed away from Jerusalem. Why did they do it? Because it says they are troubled. You see that at the end of verse 5? They were troubled and they hastened away. Now, we know something from psychologists. Psychologists tell us that people respond to trouble in one of two ways. Fight or flight. It's called the fight or flight response. You get into a situation, you get cornered, whatever the situation is, doesn't matter what it is, and you have one of two choices. You'll either fight or you'll flee. That's called the fight or flight response. That is based on the old evolutionary theory that uh, the survival of the fittest. So if you think you can fight and win, you guess what you'll do? You'll fight. If you think uh, it's better off running, guess what you'll do? You'll run. The fight or flight response. Uh, so that's what we have here. We have these people deciding to flee when they're troubled. God tells his people, that's not how you're to respond when an army comes against you or you get in trouble. It's not fight or flight. Or, I'll fight City Hall. I'll do whatever. Not fight, not flight. The proper response is faith. Trusting in the great God. If you trust in the great God and you do not lean on your own understanding, your own devices, then God sees you through. These people come, they look at the city, uh, they may see the armies of the city, who knows exactly what they see, but they're troubled by what they see, they're seized by fear, they lose their ner nerve, and they hightail out of town. Okay. That's the reason that the psalmist calls the people to praise God. Now look what he says in verse 6. Fear took hold of them there. That's these kings. Fear took hold of them there. And then the psalmist gives us two illustrations of what, what it was like for these people to be gripped by fear. Look what he says. Fear took hold of them there in pain as a woman in birth pangs. You know what it was like? It was like a woman who's pregnant and suddenly there's that sharp pain. She goes... <gasps> You need to get me to the hospital quick, right now, right now. Why does she say that? Because she's afraid that the baby's going to be born before she gets to the hospital. How do I know? <laughs> when our first son Aaron was born, Lindsay, I think we need to get there. And I said, okay, she said, now. We got there and the baby was born 20 minutes later. So she said, let's get out of here quick. These kings <laughs> take a survey of the situation in Jerusalem and say, whoa, we need to get out of here quick. Okay? That's the first illustration. Now look at the second illustration. 
as when you break the ships of Tarshish, Tarshish with the east wind. Now, this, the ships of Tarshish are merchant ships. And usually they sail very smoothly. They get from point A to point B. They get to their destination. But the seas are very angry at times. And the wind blows up. And the storm rages. And when that happens, the sailors are scared to death. Because many of these places like the Adriatic Sea became, become graveyards for ships. We have people even today that are hunting for ships that have sunk, you know, a hundred years ago. Because they figure there's gold doubloons on board or something. What happened? And they say, well, this area of the ocean is a graveyard for ships. Remember when Jonah was told to go to Nineveh? And he said, no, I think I'll take the ship and go to the other direction. Let's go to Tarshish. Does that sound familiar? Gets on board, and guess what happens? A great raging storm comes up. And the sailors say, Ah, oh, don't worry, just a little storm, right? They say, What in the world's going on? We haven't seen anything like this. We're scared to death. Uh, we need to do something. Throw everything over. Somebody must be angering the gods. Let's find out who it is and throw him overboard. Phew! This is scary stuff. Hey. Disciples on the Sea of Galilee. Great storm rages. Brave fishermen like Peter. Scared to death. They said, we're in trouble. And that's what you have here. What is it like? How frightened were they? They were frightened like a sailor in the worst kind of storm. And the ship is ready to go down. That's how frightened they were. And so they... They run. They run for their lives. They realize the situation is hopeless. They flee. They choose to flee. Now look at verse 8. As we have heard, the psalmist says, we've heard of stories like this in the past. How God miraculously delivered the city without us having to lift a hand. Look. As we have heard, so we've seen. Now we've seen it with our own eyes. So uh, they're just basically giving a testimony of what they've seen for themselves. Where have we seen it happening? Look, in verse 8, in the city of the Lord of hosts, that is Jerusalem, the Lord of hosts meaning uh, the God of angelic armies. Uh, this may give us an insight of what happened. Maybe these kings started surrounding the city and suddenly they look up and there was a big angelic army facing them. They say, whoa, what's going on here? They like, let's run for your lives. We don't know, but uh, they said, we've seen it now in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God. God will establish it, meaning the city, forever. On what basis can the psalmist say this? Because God has made a covenant with Abraham that he's going to give him a land. God has reiterated that covenant to David. You have a land. It's a land that is your land. This covenant will be completed all the way to the end of time. It was fulfilled in Jesus. And again, one day Christ will come and he will rule from David's throne in Jerusalem. This is a covenant that will last forever. 
And so Jerusalem is established forever. Selah, think about it. So in a musical uh, rendition of this song, maybe the orchestra is playing and suddenly uh, it reaches a, either a crescendo or a high point or maybe it comes in low, but finally there's a lull in the music and it gives you an opportunity to contemplate and think about this situation. Hey, this is why you're to praise God. When you think about it, we should be praising God all the time. And so here we see this uh, interlude that gives us an opportunity to think about it. And so in the actual singing of this song, uh, in the worship service, there would have been an interlude here where people are able to think about the situation. Or maybe the music you know, played in such a way that it forced you to feel the situation. Who knows what it is? But anyway... Now we have this address to God in verse 9. Notice how he speaks directly to God. We have thought, O God, on your loving kindness. We have thought, O God, on your loving kindness. This is the, con this is the subject of the thinking. This is the subject of the contemplation. What are they thinking about? What are they contemplating? Look, your loving kindness, which again is covenant language. We We've been thinking about how you've been faithful to your covenant. That you have loved us based on your covenant love. See? We've been thinking about that. Uh, where the location of the contemplation? Look at this. In the midst of your temple, verse 9. See? The subject of their contemplation? God's mercy. God's compassion. God's loving kindness based on the covenant. Where do they contemplate? In the midst of the temple. Uh, contemplation means we need to get quiet for a while. That's probably why there's a law on the music. Uh, if you want to think on God, about God, you need to be still. And you need to get your mind quiet. And this is the problem that Americans and people in the Western world have. We have very busy minds and very busy lives. And sometimes we just need to get away and we need to think upon God, contemplate God. Look at verse 10. According to your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. What does that mean, according to your name? What name? Lord Sabaoth, Lord of hosts, is that what they're saying about? El Elyon, the God who causes things to be, is that what he's talking Yahweh, the redemptive name of God, what is he saying here? Or is he just saying, does your name represent God's character? You think of Allen Street, you think of me. You think of who I am. Am I an honest person? Am I a crook? If I say Richard Nixon, you think of one. If I say Bill Clinton, you think of one thing, don't you? See, there's something that comes to your mind right away. It deals with the person's character. Is that what he's saying here? That uh, it's according to your character uh, that you are a covenant-keeping God, that you're faithful to keeping your covenant? Uh, we're not sure exactly, but God keeps his word. And so, as a result of that, guess what? So is your praise to the ends of the earth. In other words, it's deserved because of who God is. To the ends of the earth. As a result of this, the fleeing kings, God's name is and his greatness is being spread out. The kings go back home and the people say, Hey, what happened there in Jerusalem? Ah, we didn't fight. You didn't fight, why not? Whoa, we went there and saw this. And God's name is spreading all around. So we see this acknowledgement of God. 
Look at the end of verse 10. Your right hand is full of righteousness. Uh, that's simply a way of saying you're always fair, you're always just. You do what is the right thing for your people. Verse 11. Let Mount Zion rejoice. There's that call to praise again. Let Mount Zion rejoice. That means let the city of Jerusalem rejoice. Next in verse 11. Let the daughters of Judah be glad. That speaks of the surrounding villages, the little towns. The capital city should rejoice, and all the surrounding villages and towns should rejoice. That phrase, daughters of Judah, refers to small towns and villages and other passages. That's how we know that, what it means. And then, why? Look at the end of verse 11. Because of your judgments. Because you routed <laughs> the enemy. Because you do things the way they're supposed to be done. You are always just in keeping your covenant with your people. And so, everybody in Israel should be rejoicing. Okay, now, we come to the final section. And this is a call for the people to survey the city. And I enjoy this little section. I think you will too. Look what it says in verse 12. The psalmist calls upon the people to do something. Walk about Jerusalem and go all around her. In other words, take a tour of the city. Let's do a little walking tour of the city. Let's, let's see. Let's, let's just, why would you take a tour of the city? Just think about that. Governors take tours of cities sometimes. Presidents will take a tour of a city sometimes. Usually when there's a disaster, tornado, hurricane, earthquake, governor takes a tour of the city, president comes in takes a tour of the city to see how much damage is done. They're called to take a tour of the city to see that no damage was done. Because the battle's been averted. So he says, take a tour of the city. You know, we took a tour of Washington, D.C., what will we do? We go to Washington, D.C., we look at all the big buildings, we look at the Supreme Court, White House, Senate, all that. Uh, uh, whatever that thing is called, Washington Monument. <laughs> and we would be, we'd marvel at it. And we would see how it seems so permanent, you know? Uh, so there's times you take a tour of the city when there's damage, and sometimes you take a tour of the city that's standing intact. He wants them to take a tour of the city in the latter sense of the word. Look what he says. Count her towers. That's where the watchmen are up on towers. Start counting the towers around the city. How many have fallen? How many have fallen in this battle? No, they're all standing tall, aren't they? Not one has fallen. Hey, take a tour. Count. One, two, three. Oh, yeah. Every place. There's a, there's a tower. And then look what he says. Mark her bulwarks. Those are the walls around the city that are the city's defenses. A more modern term, not as modern as some, but is ramparts. Remember Francis Scott Key when he wrote Star Spangled Banner? He says the flag was standing over the ramparts. The, uh, the walls, the defensive walls of Fort McHenry are still standing and the flag is waving over the ramparts, over the wall. So here's what he says to them. He says, uh, mark her walls. Uh, how many have been knocked down? Any? No. And then what does he say? Consider her palaces. Let's go over to 
Holland Park. And let's let's see how many of the the mansions are still standing. Oh, they're all standing. How many are vacant? How many people have had to flee to the temple as their last stand as the refuge? Or did they just stay in their homes because the invasion never... Oh, they're still there. Look at the yards. Everything looks just right. See, Any windows broken? Oh, everything's fine in the palaces. So he tells them to do that. Why should they do it? What's the purpose for touring the city? Look what he says at the end of verse 13. That you may tell it to the generation following. Burn these images in your mind so that you can tell it to the next generation and to your children and your grandchildren and their children that when you trust in the Lord your city remains intact. All you need to do is remain faithful. Trust the Lord and walk by faith. Look what he says in verse 14. For this is God. Uh, this is what God's like. This is a God thing. Uh, he doesn't change. This is God. If you're going to tell it to the next generation, guess what you're saying? Hey, this is what God did, and this is God. This is what He'll do for you. This is a God thing, and He'll stand up for you. So in verse 1, the psalm starts off with, Great is the Lord. See? Great is the Lord. And it ends with, This is our God. See, He's great. And then it goes on to say, Our God, this is how He is, forever and ever. He doesn't change. You can depend upon Him the same as my generation depended upon Him. He's available to you as He was available to us. See? And then he says, He will be our guide. Even to death. The New King James says, some say even forever. But it means even till you take your last breath. God uh, will not leave you. God will not forsake you. God will not forget you. He's established a covenant. He's true to His name. He's true to His word. We heard about these stories in the past. We've now seen it with our own eyes. And we're passing it on to you that you can know that our God is great and He's worthy to be praised. Next week we'll pick up with Psalm 49. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that this Word is for us. That even in death, we know that you remember us. You remember us to our last breath. And we're always on your mind. We're always in your heart. And one day, you will conquer death. You will set up your kingdom on earth. You will rule from Jerusalem. You will raise us from the dead. And we will reign with you forever. We thank you for this, Lord, and we praise you for being a great God. In Jesus' name, amen.